I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's podcast is in two parts. It starts off as a quick run through the state of the market through the eyes of two very senior underwriting practitioners, but then it dives right into the heart of the state of the underwriting profession itself and how the life of an underwriter is going to change in the future. In their high-profile careers, both Sylvie Wampa-Sinclair and James Slaughter have been at the forefront of transforming the business of underwriting and are extremely well-placed to outline the future of the profession. The message is pretty clear. Transformation in the way all underwriters work is coming, and everyone needs to get ready to change the way they do business in order to reap the benefits. Productivity is set to rise enormously as the machines do a lot more of the grunt work. But the good news for underwriters and brokers is that the roles for the humans in the process are going to become a lot more interesting. At the same time, everyone's career prospects are going to be boosted hugely. Listen on for a fascinating and inspiring dive into the future of underwriting. Enjoy the podcast. Sylvie and James, thank you so much for giving up the time. This is a state of the market roundtable. Why don't we just go straight into it? How would you describe the state of the market? Shall I start with you, Sylvie? Thanks for that, Mark. Look, I guess it's the best we've seen in a decade, but not really everywhere. I think there are clear geographical differences. There are also clear line of business differences. Like I'm sure a lot of people can read in the headlines of our industry newsletters, the rate movements are tapering off, but they're still positive. And I guess there's absolutely no shortage of risk-willing capital to the disappointment of a lot of both the reinsurers and, and insurers out there. I guess the big uncertainty factor is probably the fallout from COVID-19. I guess many have drawn a sigh of relief, but I think there's still a few questions out there about what is actually going to happen. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's what I would say. James, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. So very broadly the same, thinking about capacity, plentiful, whether that's reinsurance or insurance, you're able to place business pretty comfortably, I think, as a broker, that's not necessarily a challenge. I'd probably say the rate adequacy is there or thereabouts across the broad portfolio, which is the first time in a while. There's a couple of areas where I think the risk probably doesn't reflect in the price of the product side as a good example where ransomware it's changing the dynamics of that market. And I think that market's got to go and do some correction. But broadly, price adequacy is good. I'd also say, perhaps for very good reasons, and many of the subject matter we might get into around how data is improving our decision-making and how companies are being a little bit more quantitative and data-driven in their decision-making, I'm seeing more discipline. So consistency is probably the word I'd use around discipline. People are making consistently the same decisions, which is encouraging. And I think that points to a better long-term proposition, particularly for carriers. That's great. But I'd also say I'm seeing competition being fought much more aggressively across a wider range of fronts. So price, which is our inherently our main front for competitive action, I'm seeing more of that arising through product, definitely in the service provision. And now, frankly, in talent and across our position on economic, social and governance issues, that is a multifaceted competitive landscape, which perhaps 10 years ago, certainly 15 years ago, was all about price. And so I think it's a more complex and disciplined market for those reasons. 
So Sylvie, would you agree that the price adequacy is there? Would you agree with James in general? And then if you do agree, would you say, does that mean that it's unlikely that we're going to have much further of this hardening cycle to run? In general, I would agree, but I think there are some nuances that are well worth pointing out. I think what we're seeing is that there's probably more rate adequacy in insurance as compared to reinsurance. That's not true everywhere, but I think there's more hardening in insurance than in reinsurance. I think we also see more rate adequacy in property and specialty as compared to casualty. And I think even if you have sort of short-term rate adequacy in casualty, I think the more longer-term adequacy there is challenged by the spectre of social inflation and economic inflation, to be honest. Like James mentioned, I think cyber is red hot due to ransomware attacks. And I guess there's probably more to come in terms of, of further hardening there. But overall, I do believe that we will probably see a tapering off slowly but surely. And if I bet my money, I guess we would see another 18 to possibly 24 months of more muted increases and then more of a flattish development. So you're reasonably happy, though, you'd say that it's not a terrible scenario? No. There's not going to be a sudden crash or anything. We're not going to suddenly fall off a cliff and as everyone recovers so their risk appetite and sort of rediscover greed as opposed to fear. I think there are enough risks out there still. So I think hopefully that would keep people in check and balance for a while longer. So James, you feel when there's a sort of truce, particularly there's enough fear on the casualty side to temper any sort of land grab of market share, for example? So without getting into the weeds of social inflation, I don't think social inflation gets solved in the current geopolitical environment very quickly. I do take a different view to some other public commentary around social inflation being always there. I actually think this particular brand of social inflation, if you like, that we've experienced from late 16 through to the current environment is actually very specific to the political and social environment we are in today, which is very different to 15, 20 years ago. I would say, and only because if you've tried to do any DIY recently and buy some building materials or get a builder, you have to start thinking that general cost-based inflation has to be something that we keep a very strict and cautious eye on today, more so than perhaps we have done in the last six or seven years, because I think COVID, global supply constraints, commodity price rises, huge money printing exercises in terms of backstops and furloughs and things like that present in prima facie a huge inflation risk in cost, you know, non-social inflation, if you like. That has to bear on the minds of all business leaders and underwriters of longer tail risks. And so I absolutely agree with Sylvie. 18 to 24 months, I feel like rent will stay ahead of claims cost and improve the adequacy. And we'll see some dynamics around. So we absolutely pointed out this sort of U-shaped or V-shaped, as we coined it back in Monte Carlo two years ago, pricing curve between insurance and reinsurance. I actually think that dynamic probably endures a little longer because I think the reinsurance market competition angles are slightly different to the insurance competition vectors. But I think we have to be very, very careful in long-term lines of the return of cost inflation, if you like. So there's still plenty of caution out there and enough worry to temper any competitive sort of urges or sort of animal spirits there in terms of what's out there in reserves. 
How are people feeling about reserves generally? Are they feeling better about their reserves than they were maybe two years ago? There was palpably more worry about back here reserves. I think it's probably one metric maybe to look to is the amount of prior deals being done and the amount of activity. So obviously, in my prior life, I was very active managing prior year portfolios and, and continuing to execute. There have been a number of reasonably significant London market transactions that were an evolution on the traditional RITC, a bit more laser, a bit more LPT in terms of field. People are being more creative and clearly very much more active in their management of prior year reserve from a capital perspective, from a strategic perspective. That would suggest, certainly for 18 and prior, people have sufficient concern and nervousness around ultimate outcomes. COVID is a difficult one because I think it makes it difficult for both sides of any legacy trade to come to a landing. So I think that might slow it down whilst people sort those issues out. But in terms of overall reserve adequacy, we've heard headline numbers around deficiency in the hundreds of billions of dollars in various commentaries over the last 24 months. And I don't necessarily side with that level of scepticism about the strength of the industry, although I think broadly the industry suffered a little bit from not having enough fuel in that tank come 1819. And so we'll probably see again a little bit more discipline over a, a longer period now. I come back to the thing, underwriting is going to be increasingly data-driven, so will reserving. And with more data, there's more transparency and I think more consistency. And I'd, I'd expect that to be part of the evolution as we go through this phase of the cycle. There's nowhere to hide if people can see clearly what the loss trends are and what the real loss cost is, or that they've got a better handle on these things much quicker. There's nowhere to hide in the sort of waving the instruments of looking the other way when the market's not the right price. No, I think that's increasingly hard to do. I think if you're an exec running a company and you look at the state of the market today, I think you'd feel good about the pricing environment. You'll feel okay about your reserve position. You'll feel pretty good about your competitive position and talent. And I think the question will be, well, what do you do next? And what's the transformation? Where do I invest? What are the talent and capabilities I need to stay at the front of the business? I think you might be less concerned, given the pricing that Sylvia and I talked about, about the detail of the underwriting and you'll probably feel okay about that. So the, the next focus for me as an exec an organization of our size is really what are the skills I need? What are the tools and technologies and data that I need to build a sustainable level of performance at these kinds of levels? Because they're the ones that my ambition says that this is what we should be doing consistently across the cycle. With sort of getting into this operational side of underwriting, Sylvia, do you agree with that? Do you think as the market discovers the price in a far more scientific way, we can have obviously odd differences of opinion and we can have different risk appetites in different places and different costs of capital and other things. But at the same time, it sounds like we're going to have a future where the price is far less debatable than it has been. And therefore, we're going to be competing more on, James mentioned earlier, actually, to have service and the product itself to be valued rather than just the price. Do you agree with that? And is that the sort of thing you're preparing for in your long-term plans? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I think what James mentioned there about discipline, I think also the fact that there's quite a bit of fresh capital around, which forces everybody else not to forget past mistakes and stay on our toes. And I think that definitely begs the question of 
cost efficiency for sure, but also what I would call almost strategic efficiency. And, you know, how do we run this company going forward? I think quite honestly, at least in the reinsurance world, I think we're still some way off of having the perfect services and solutions offering out there. I think there is a lot of ambition for sure. But I think there's also a pretty strong legacy of thinking only in price. So I think that will be a bit of a journey. But the ambition is definitely there across the board. And absolutely, I think that definitely puts the finger on the topics that James raised, which is how do we do the basics right? How do we get our house in order so that we can actually spend our time and effort where it truly matters? And then the big second question to that is, do we have the right people on board who can help us do that, which is, I think, a bigger question mark that's not been straightened out yet. And Sylvia, you mentioned about new capital there. Obviously, I've spent a lot of time interviewing quite a lot of this new capital. And these days, doesn't seem to be as much about the capital as they're starting with a legacy-free business on a technology side of things, not just a clean balance sheet. Mm -hmm. Is that almost they're keeping you competitive because they're showing clients a better way or a better, more efficient way of doing things? Of course, they all start in the cloud these days. They don't have old green screen servers sitting in the corner of their offices or in the basements. Is that more of the challenge rather than the actual capital itself? Indeed. I mean, there's enough capital to go around. I think it's more about showing your impatient shareholders how you generate value for that. And I think the data is absolutely a core asset that these newcomers do know how to put a price on and put a value on and, and make something that is cool and that attracts the right people and talent to their offices. So indeed, I think it's the offering and also how they show that they actually bring value to the table, which makes a big difference beyond the capital itself. So James, you agree, is it almost like you're competing with something that sounds like a more attractive business because it's new and it's got no legacy of any kind and it can start with state-of-the-art in the cloud tech? And does that make it more of an appealing place, perhaps a talented younger underwriter to go and work and think, goodness me, this is great. I avoid all this transition, this painful transition that I'm going to have at this current employer. I can go somewhere else and just leapfrog straight into the future. That's a very nuanced question. I'm going to break it down into a couple of parts, if I may. One is, in your question, Sylvia, before you talked about legacy-free being one of the propositions of fresh capital into the market, that was absolutely fundamental, I think, to the way that investors think about new capital opportunities on the balance sheet side of our business. Why is that important? I think long-term, as a business, we have to become more nimble. We have to become, as an industry, more capable of digesting data, seeing what it tells us. And if it doesn't tell us anything useful, just getting rid of it. One of our problems in the industry is we are in the old technology landscape with this huge infrastructure. We're not very nimble, and so we don't try as much as we might. We might not be able to move as fast as we would like. And so we become pretty cumbersome. And I had been, obviously, in my previous life, seen the budgets and seen the investments and seen the cost of transformation. And they are mind-boggling, certainly very, very large numbers. So fresh start is obviously attractive. As it pertains to talent, I think it's a great point. And indeed, as you think about the types of skills, the types of capabilities, and the types of careers that people are interested in, I look around lawyers, and I will say this hand on heart, I think the younger generation, I say that with a heavy heart, 
approaching the age where I'm the older generation, which is terrible. The younger generation are the most talented generation we've had at Lloyd's, in my experience. I was pretty dismissive of the generation or two before me. I was slightly less dismissive of my own generation, but I think the generation below us is perhaps the most talented and most diverse in experience, thought process uh, and capability. That's an incredibly encouraging sign. Why is that generation coming through with that abundance of talent? I think it's because they're attracted to the opportunities that technology, service, client engagement, advanced analytics brings because it makes the job, frankly, more exciting. It makes the problem solving more meaningful. I'm solving a client's problem. I'm not solving some internal problem that's a nightmare to go down to a server and try and recode somewhere that is in an antiquated language on a bunch of stuff I don't care about because it's dead. Versus I've got a customer whose cyber exposure is a challenge. I need a new product. And I'll give you a very good Apollo advertorial, if you like, we have 1971 iBot. It's the sharing economy syndicate. It's one of a kind. It's done entirely based on team approach to a client. So we have data scientists, actuaries, risk managers, claims managers, and underwriters in the team per deal. It's very data-driven, so a terabits of data per contract. It is done in 100% joint venture collaboration with the client. We're genuinely sitting in the client's office trying to understand what the real problem is. And the state of play today is that the product we sell is a product that you could not have taken a motor policy or a GL policy and somehow tweaked it a little bit and handed it, as our underwriter would say, trying to ram a square peg through a round hole in our industry, which is our standard response, is not the right answer here. So for me, that's the attraction to younger, smarter, digital natives, there's the problem solving, there's real customer service, there's real problem solving, real value creation, as opposed to living in a legacy world where the culture is more siloed. But that, I think, answers that particular question. And, and I get it, I look across the market and I genuinely think there's a very, very talented cohort in and around the London market today who truly get it and are probably mildly frustrated that only one or two firms are kind of getting there at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think just knowing that or, or being grateful to our friends in InsureTech, I think the spillover from all the VC and private equity investment that's going on in InsureTech right now bodes well for the rest of us because I think they've been able to show that insurance is not just something to be ignored, but can actually be quite sexy at times if we want it to be. Sylvia, both you and James have been involved in the insure tech scene. This harder market, this market opportunity that we've got now, is the first time it's really coincided with the last four or five years of quite substantial insure tech investment, which is still continuing, of course. So to coin that London market phrase, rubber hitting the road, we're sort of at that phase for a lot of things. Lots of proofs of concept have now been proven. There are businesses out there. There are people you can collaborate with, implying those technology in the underwriting sphere. If you can talk about specific examples in terms of things that you have applied or you're looking to apply across different classes, for example. Look, I think, sadly, when we're talking about underwriting, I think the big first holy grail that is still to be solved is getting your data in better shape. And that's certainly true for internal data, first of all, but also a question of how do you then enrich that with external data? So I think that big 
notion of for each and every contract, how do we get a sort of a 360 degrees view of that so that for the individual underwriter, they don't have to spend the vast majority of their time chasing data from different places. And if they happen to get a hold of it, then they have to reconcile it. But rather that they're able to spend the vast majority of their time analyzing data and drawing worthwhile conclusions from it and then acting upon those conclusions. So I think that getting the basics right still needs to be fixed in a lot of different corners. And that's what we're doing at Swiss Re. And I think that is where the vast majority of investments will go into. In a sense, it's a question of garbage in, garbage out. You can buy the sexiest analytics, but if you don't really have anything to feed it with, it won't truly matter. However, what I then see happening is also digitization of contracts and contract workflows to really help underwriters understand what is it that we are covering. And I think COVID, especially for the Western world, was one of those light bulb moments where it became so painfully clear that we need to be able to understand this and not by sieving through large PDF documents, but actually having technology help for that. And then I think finally, where I see it being applied a lot and where investments are going is really steering the underwriting workflow end to end. And I know this is a bit of a buzzword, but I think, again, it comes back to data and actually making sure that you capture the data you need first time around so that it isn't possible to jump steps, that it isn't possible to move forward without filling in what is truly important. So really putting a stronger steer on what do you look at before you make your decision and then how do you make your decision and what does it actually mean? Do you think we're getting any better at getting the data standards that we need, particularly if we're going to be blending in third party and obviously enriching data as much as possible to make it more valuable? Are we getting to the data standards? Is there a sense that we're finally creating this common language? If you ask me, I think we still have some way to go. I think sometimes, you know, if we look at our industry cousins of banking or investment management, I think they have come further in terms of having that joint language, even if it's not directly comparable. I think we still have a lot to do. And I think it's sometimes as easy as just picking up the conversation with our clients, with our students, and really insisting on it as opposed to just saying, oh, right, we'll let it go. And, and I think that just puts data in a new light as probably the most valuable asset we have, as opposed to something that you can kind of throw around a bit and then store in a deep, dark vault somewhere. James, I'd love to hear your views on this, particularly about data standards, and also find out what tools you're most excited about implementing, particularly once you're comfortable, you can do it properly. Let's start with latter first, if I may. So I look at it in three lenses. Unfortunately, COVID has made my acronym a little political, but PPE, so performance, productivity, and engagement. So what does that really mean? So performance is around data enrichment to support underwriting decisions or claims decisions. I use underwriting to mean the full life cycle of a product. Productivity is very clearly around how efficiently we make those decisions. And engagement is really a lens I don't think we as an industry get very well. And I'll, I'll pick up a point Sylvie made a minute ago around data standards. And engagement is about how do we create the customer experience 
compels the client to want to do more with us. If you're a personal lines insurance buyer in the UK, you either like Welsh opera singers or Russian meerkats, but something in that process compels you to do business with them. And it is the customer experience. And it's mainly digital. It's mainly very engaged and it's very simple. And I think as an industry on the commercial side, we've kind of shrugged and gone, well, it's complex, isn't it? So you can't just make it easy. And it's not a service game. It's a product expertise game. I just think that's unfortunately a naive position in a world where digitization and commerce is going to change. So look at it through those three lenses in terms of where we're making advances. Yeah, incremental improvements in data enrichment. There's lots of third-party data out there to bring in that might challenge you to ask harder questions of your risk decisions. That's work in progress. I think you can think of that as incremental, adding little bits of data on. Productivity is very interesting. What does it really mean? It means some of the things that Sylvie points to. How do we ingest that data? How do I roll that data through my system as quickly and efficiently so I have a single version of the truth, my finance team, my drill team, my claims team, my underwriting team, all looking at the same thing, that I'm not regurgitating, re-entering, and doing all of those things that we historically do very badly. So that productivity piece is important. But again, the industry, if you listen to the commentary of the industry of the last 20 years, it's been, we're doing this M&A to drive efficiency in the back and middle office. Well, firstly, there's no such thing as back, middle, and front office in the organizations I work in. We're all one team servicing our clients, but unfortunately, the industry has a back, middle, and front mindset focusing on the areas of productivity in the back of the middle office is a finite in its achievement in its opportunity and also non-scalable the scalable opportunity for productivity gain is in your decision making and customer service lens which is your underwriting claim so for me focusing there on those elements is going to be much more important and there are increasingly very interesting tools capabilities both in short tech poc type enterprises, as well as more advanced and larger organizations that are learning from other industries and bringing those capabilities to where I think there's a more pressing and immediate opportunity to deploy those capabilities in the market. And engagement is something we've really got to work on. And I think that's a joint venture between the insurance carriers and the brokers or insurance carriers and the brokers about how we do a better job for a client, which leads me to a point I just wanted to pick up on with Sylvie, in which I might take a slightly contraposition which is really around data standards. I think the whole art of customer service and client engagement is not to tell the customer what we want, it's to respond to what the customer is asking of us. So if the customer is saying, here's my data, I wouldn't necessarily say that I want to go back and say, no, no, thank you very much, very kind. But what I'd like you to do is to put it in this format, in this style, in this software package on Tuesday by 3 p.m. Because that's not customer engagement. That's, in fact, the wrong way around. What I should be thinking about is, okay, tell me what you've got. Tell me how easy is it to make? How do I make your life as easy as possible in a way in which I get what I want? And we can be a little less deliberate in our need for structured data. Yeah, we want it as structured as possible because it's easier to deal with. I love standards on inter-industry data exchange and all of those concepts. And I think we are moving forward slowly as ever. And it's sharing a broker-produced exposure set that is used by the reinsurance industry for a particular seed and once rather than everyone rerunning the same thing. I get it. It makes loads of sense. But saying to a customer as an insurance provider, I want you, in fact, I'm dictating to you how you provide your data to me, feels like the wrong 
approach. And it should be, tell me how you produce your data, what structure, what format, what time frame, how repeatable is it? How easy can I just pull that data into my system? Let me take the strain. That's the engagement and piece of the business. I think we've kind of not really focused on. The tools that are out there today, I think not necessarily right now, but in the coming years, I think we're going to be able to be more engaging in that way. And therefore, again, upping that service offering to our customers. And I'll go back the way I think we evolve as an industry and some of the emerging opportunities, again, in the shared economy, they're so data intensive. It can't be that we tell them how we want the data. It has to be how they supply us the data to enable us to support, solve their problems and engage. And if you think about what shared economy product is, it's an enablement product and it's embedded within the product itself. And if you extend that into many of the areas which today are personal lines, areas like auto, they become commercial, I think, long-term as embedded products within AV and EV shared non-ownership programs that increasingly look like they're going to be large parts of our economy. So maybe didn't answer the data specifically, but I think it's really important that we don't, as an industry, create a load of standards and established processes that our customers just look at and go, well, that's not what we do. I think what James said there about having technology help us is definitely true. And I think we are experimenting with quite a few tools that can solve some of those issues. However, I think, again, if I just look at other industries, I think there is more we can do around common standards, not sort of in a fascist way saying, look, this is what we have to have, because indeed that is not good client engagement. But I think together, both reinsurers and insurers, I think there's more that we can do for the benefit of ourselves, actually. And I just wanted to touch on a good word which James brought up, which is mindset. And something that I also think that we do need to change, and this is equally important to the data angle, is moving away from this traditional annual renewal timeline, because the world doesn't really move in annual cycles anymore. Things can move very fast, especially if you're thinking about forward-looking views and trends of like what is going to come. Are you going to sit for a year and say, no, 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 this is the view I took nine months ago. I'm not going to change it until three months time. And I think that will require a nimbleness and a very different mindset to be willing to move faster and sometimes actually work harder to have an up-to-date perspective on stuff. What I wanted to ask you on the productivity front is, how interested are you in tools to allow underwriters to do more profitable work? There are tools out there to help triage underwriters' workflow, and at least you know, out of the first 100 submissions to send the underwriter the top 10 that the computer thinks might be the most likely to be winnable or within risk appetite, etc. How far down the line do you think you're getting with those kind of productivity tools in either of your organizations? James? I've seen them live in market working very effectively. I come at this from maybe a slightly different view to others, or maybe, maybe not, but I think of claims adjusters and underwriters as our most valuable asset. They're engaged with our customers. They know our customers. They're the production units of our organizations. So in an attempt to make them more valuable to us, we're trying to unlock metrics like premium per head, profitability, and things like that by making them make better decisions. So the carrot to those 
people in our teams is we can make you better. But to do that, we've got to change some of your work processes. I need you to disentangle yourself from the pipeline. I need a machine to do the very basics of inappetite, broker with a toba, business we like, ESG, credit, whatever those factors might be that you make your initial selections on. Now, we've seen those live. You know, my previous job, I worked with the team to put those live in the market, and they are extremely compelling as tools. And again, what is the benefit of a machine doing that? Machines are fast, they're scalable, they're consistent, and inherently unbiased if you are good at your coding, right? You've got to be good in your test data, and your training data has to be well understood to make that true. But those are the four attributes that I think of in the machine world that are very valuable to us as an industry. Why do I want a human involved? Because if that's what I get from a machine, what on earth do I need a human for? Well, we're a human market. And Mark, you'll know from 2030, three months ago, that I had a slide as my penultimate slide, the broker is dead. And if you remember, that was the headline. And I did ask you to report the final slide, which is long live the broker. But even now, eight years on, I do get ripped for it from my broker friends. Thank you. But the engagement piece there, it's human. And a broker doesn't want to come to a machine and type in some things and get a yes, no answer. There's too much nuance, too much detail, too much complexity in these systems that we're ensuring, if you like. And so that human part is so important, as well as dealing with the unexplained or the unknown or the uncoded aspects of a risk or a prototypical risk. There's so much value that an expert has in providing that judgment. All we want to do is focus those judgments on the risks we kind of already think are more likely to add value to our organizations. And so to me, that angle around productivity at that front end of the process, that's where a real opportunity for us. And indeed, I've been at Apollo for a mere three months but we actually ran a pilot triage process on one of our lines of business during the Q2 renewals. And fascinating in terms of its underwriting response, fascinating in terms of the broken response or lack thereof to it, which was good because we were making decisions, sometimes non-renewal piece of business because it went through the filter in a different way previously. So they are the real opportunities. And I think the industry can get better at doing this. There are plenty of providers of those sorts of tools and in theory can build them yourself. I find that piece of it the most pressing and immediate opportunity for us as underwriters to really leverage technology in a way where all parties to the system, the regulators, the capital, the customers, our brokers and our employees can understand what it's doing. Yeah. So it's not black box magic. What sort of results are you getting? How much more productive could you make your best underwriters so that you take away all the time-wasting stuff that they were doing for things that are out of scope? You can get material 20 to 40% improvements in productivity. No question. That's great. I can't give you real numbers, obviously, because I'm probably not, yeah. not in a place to do that anymore. Sylvia, is that similar sort of experience to you? I mean, these are very highly paid people and making someone who's very highly paid 20 to 40% more productive has to be a great goal for the business, isn't it? Absolutely. I would definitely agree with that. I think we can probably do even more over time, but I think a quick win is definitely there. And it's, in a sense, it's funny because it doesn't take that much because we are, as an industry, starting from a fairly low level. So you can have some very early wins with with very good results. And if you ask me, I mean, I think there will always be a room for both humans and machines. And 
sometimes I think we are overly worried about this in insurance and we think that nobody has been through this path before us. And I always say, hey, you know, look at banking, look at investment management. They're close enough to us. Looking at what they've done would give us a pretty good idea of what has been put under the realm of machines and what remains in in human hands. And I think forever, yes, a machine can help us synthesize data, give us tips on what to look at. But at the end of the day, I think there will always be room for a human conclusion, for shaping actions. And it's especially for those large, very complex risks that still will exist. Yes, maybe we can put 80% of that processing in the hands of a machine, but there will always be room for a human side by side. So that's how I try to think about it. Yeah, the world seems to be getting more complicated rather than less complicated. So anyway, we've had some algorithmic underwriting already kicking off in the London market. What's your gut feeling? Obviously, you're saying it's never going to be 100%. What's your gut feeling, say, in 10 or 15 years' time, what would be routine to be automatically underwritten in the subscription market? I want to just be very clear in how I think about it. So I don't favor the use of the expression algorithmic underwriting. Yeah. Much prefer the expression augmented underwriting. At some point in the value chain, a human is involved. That is either in setting portfolio parameters, that's dealing with engagement with the brokers, that's dealing with a particular claims issue in the life cycle of our policy. Algorithmic to me lends itself to machine says yes, machine says no. And there are many, many perils. There are some great literature out there around the perils of bias and machine error in things like the US school teachers review program or indeed the US jury system and the penal awards they give out and the way that's done and been driven by data in the past. You have to be very careful. So I try to avoid using it algorithmic because I think it creates attention with the people you talk to, but it also slightly misleading around what the objective here is. And for me, I can see a market where certain relatively straightforward transactions at the transactional level are fully automated. I completely can see that, where a leader has been found, the expert judgment has been applied in the right way, the leader rewarded for that expertise and value add in problem solving, and the market, because it's pretty standard, it's pretty straightforward, and it's relatively low limit, low complexity, you could 100% run that through transactionally with no or very little human intervention, I think. But that's not got no human intervention because at the top, the portfolio parameters for a carrier are being set, the relationships with the broker are being managed, the claims are being settled in certain aspects. So there's always human intervention somewhere around the system. As you go up the complexity and scale, that feels like it's harder to do. I don't think you're going to write $100 million lines on an algorithmic-only approach. And so I think you'll see this range of outcomes based on complexity and scale of the product. But I don't think it's inconceivable to have well over 50% of a subscription market essentially being automatically applied to a slip, even perhaps going beyond that towards 60 65%, I think is feasible. But as an industry, I'm a big fan of Blueprint. I think John and, and with Patrick coming board have a great opportunity to drive change. I just fear, as an industry, we're always a little easy to come back off the ambition because we might damage a few 
of the entities on the way. And maybe we're just too nice as an industry because we're not prepared to break a few of those eggs to make that omelette, which ultimately I think we have to just accept that it's going to happen and move forward. That's interesting what you described, James, as being almost a live portfolio underwriter, because you're saying some things may be done automatically, but of course, there's a human there twiddling the knobs and changing the appetite almost live as results come through, as they look at their daily returns and what they've actually underwritten and at what terms and whether they're feeling they're getting the right showing or they should be more competitive or actually charge more or have slightly different TNC and other things, which are all going to be controllable. You still envision someone who's effectively the live portfolio underwriter who's on top of this all the time and sort of effectively sort of you know, pressing buttons and turning dials and things. Yeah, and pressing the flesh because it's a human business. Absolutely. If I was a regulator, I'd be very worried that it wasn't being done. And if I'm a capital provider, which I am, I would want to know that I've got someone to talk to as to what the result I'm getting is, why I'm seeing it. Because I can't talk to the machines. It's a pretty boring conversation. So I'd want someone there owning you know, ownership is such an important part of the results we produce. So I think it's a very important part. That's why I always revert to this expression, augmented underwriting, because I think it just sells that picture of exactly what's going on a little better. Sylvia, have you got a similar vision? Do you want to train an army of these sort of live portfolio underwriters pressing buttons and turning dials and things? Well, I think as automation or augmentation goes up, so does the need for monitoring. I mean, that goes hand in hand, right? And if you look at factories nowadays you know you don't have human beings necessarily standing there at the belt they stand in a control room pressing buttons and so on and indeed pressing the red button if they see something go wrong so indeed i mean i see a very similar role play but again i mean just coming back to these most complex deals sure in particular where a human will always be needed but I think that doesn't mean that also I think a large part of a big complex transaction can be somehow augmented, whether it's checking for missing data or checking for erroneous data or checking for inconsistencies, all of that which a machine can simply do better because they don't tire and they don't go to the pub and get drunk. So I think there will always be room for a good mixture. Where do you think the brokers fit in? in that automation, are they going to automate as well? Do you worry about them gaming the system in some way? Or they would always see it as their job to find the path of least resistance, I presume, and to find the best terms at the the lowest price. Are you worried about what they might be able to bring to bear on this? I'm not too worried. I'm actually more excited in a way. I mean, I think brokers have a natural, interesting role of standing in the middle, collecting insights that might otherwise be hard to come by. Usually, if you're afraid of something, the best remedy is to develop knowledge and skill. And I think that is also what insurers need to do so that they don't have to rely on somebody nor worry. I'm actually more excited, but absolutely. I mean, I think insurers cannot lean back and hope for the best. They have to be on their toes to match these skills and capabilities for sure. Two aspects of that. One is if you extend the gaming system thing, ultimately burn away capital, that's a bad outcome, right, for a broker. But equally as a carrier, a little bit of where the market you're in, if you don't have those skills and capabilities on you, not on the broker's mischievous calculating approach to the market. And I think it's easy for carriers to blame a third party when 
realistically having a good internal nose around your business would reveal that you don't have the right skill set, for example. Having said that, I actually very much agree with Sylvie in terms of the excitement around it. And I go back to my PPE and the engagement piece of it. What is the opportunity? The opportunity I see, I call it a joint venture. If we're freed up to spend more time doing the problem solving and the value add and the insight generation, we're doing that in partnership more or less with the broker. Why are we doing that? The service proposition of what we're now doing is enabling the broker to be more efficient with us so they spend more time with the client, more time with the client working on the problem, producing the data, whatever it is that they're doing to really drive the value down to the customer. If the broker is spending eight hours a day trying to navigate our multiple systems of engagement and sending 50 emails a day and getting no reply and then having to phone up and chase up and wasting all their time talking to us, that's time they're not talking to the customer. And the more time they spend with the customer, the better for both us as carriers and for the broker and ultimately for the customer. And I come back to this point, I think engagement is an area of the industry that has not had the attention recently. Certainly in my career, it's 23, 24 years nearly that I've been here. I don't think of the customer as the first thing I think about. And I think that's a really interesting lens to rethink with digital, with insure tech, with data, and with a market in the current climate that we are, to really think about that. And for me, the excitement is sitting down with the brokers and saying, how do we deliver even more value to the customer by working better and smarter together? So I see that as the opportunity. That's, I think, in line with Sylvie's excitement about the opportunity, as opposed to the smart broker with loads of data and intelligence going to shaft me because I haven't got the intelligence on the other side and they gain the informational asymmetry. So. I feel much more excited than I do pessimistic on that one. And obviously, yeah, and you're saying if they shaft you, you've only yourself to blame for putting a line down when you shouldn't have done. Yeah. Obviously, you're part of organisations with your own resources. What do you think is the best strategy in general over your careers of what you've learned? Is it better to be an enthusiastic adopter and partnerer with external tech solution providers, or is this still an advantage to be gained investing a lot in your own proprietary technology or is it a bit of a combination of both sylvie i think the risk of falling behind when you develop your in-house technology has increased a lot over the past couple of years because technology is just moving so very fast now so i think that's just something to bear in mind now having said that i definitely see a combination of both worlds. And probably you will find going forward that a lot of insurers will always have a penchant for developing in-house what is tremendously strategic and are more willing to enter into partnerships or outsourcing for less so aspects of their business. At the same time, I also think we will see more fluidity where you might start out working with somebody in a partnership and you kind of learn from them and then maybe come to realize that hmm, actually this is really important to me. This is a skill or a capability I need in-house and then you start developing it yourself. So I think we will see a lot more fluidity, a lot more flexibility as opposed to these large BMOF sort of core infrastructures to that are sort of the curse of our legacy systems. Yeah, the first point Sylvie made was, for me, the most important one here, which is that the industry has traditionally lent heavier on internal capability. And that feels 
probably not quite right given the pace of change and the complexity of evolving capabilities. I think there's a perverse incentive on companies with large tech and ops teams to give it to their team. Why? Well, they're carrying the cost anyway, so they might as well use them. B, they know our internal systems pretty well, so there's no learning curve to get up. And C, do you want to be the CEO that tells your tech team that the outsiders are better than you because that's what you're essentially saying if you go outside. So I think there has been a perverse sort of incentive to continue to build in-house, particularly if you've got a big budget. I'm at a company which doesn't have a large budget, and so we can't, whereas the likes of Swiss and many of the big global companies will obviously have huge budgets and, and huge capabilities. If you extend the cloud-enabled companies' approach to this, what you're actually building are tools. Because infrastructure has become a third-party service. Infrastructure as a service. You're buying it from an Amazon or an Azure or whatever. Essentially, you're buying almost all your infrastructure in a digital format. So what are you really using that for? You're using that infrastructure to drive decision-making, reporting, management, exposure management, all those sorts of things. So actually, what you're building is a suite of capabilities through essentially some sort of analytics layer overlain above the infrastructure, the digital infrastructure. I actually think that requires a different set of skills. I think that requires a less in-house IT capability because you're not plugging things in, plugging things out, recoding versions, updating versions, putting a new security fix onto the patch, onto the system. That's all being done for you. And I see an evolution, particularly for companies of our size, which will benefit more greatly from partnership and outsourcing some of those capabilities. So I actually see it trending towards a more third-party model. And I think Toby's absolutely right. Where you've got the capability and it's highly strategic and proprietary, I think you have a tendency to want to do that yourself. But I think you can still do that in a third-party engagement model because you go find a vendor, maybe buy that vendor because you really like the product and stop anyone else having it and you because you can. Or you work with them and, and develop that sort of bespoke thing. And this morning, we were meeting as an organization with a really interesting, it wouldn't qualify as an insure tech, but the product they produce, which is high tech, has huge amounts of insurance value. And I know them from another source. And I brought them in to say, does this technology change our view and thinking about a certain aspect of the risk? And the answer appears to be yes. So they're not an insure tech. So there's lots of companies out there doing things that I think are important for us to look at and engage with, particularly as we talk about the data and enrichment and decision-making. So therefore, would you say that the successful insurers of the future are going to be more likely to be better managers of all these different third-party tech and almost blenders of it and picking the best of it rather than taking it off the market? I go back to my comment about generations and competencies. I truly think we as an industry are light on some of these really important digital skills. I think we can talk about having coders and data scientists and things like that, but I think you're scratching the surface there. Getting into all of the more complex arenas around how you build an agile digital infrastructure to support real-time decision-making, data ingestion, and all of the complex facets of our business, they're skill sets that we as leaders have to go out and find. So if we were to do a capability assessment of our industry today, I think we would find some pretty hefty gaps that get in the way of us moving forward at the right pace. And it's incumbent on the industry to be honest with ourselves, a dose of humility and recognize that we're probably lacking 
and we need to make those investments going forward. And I, I certainly feel that in my career, and whilst I can do a bit of coding, I wouldn't let myself loose on any Apollo coding. We just have to recognize that those skills are very different and new and evolving skills, and we've got to move with the times and attract that talent to the industry. But Sylvie said it completely went. If InsurTech hasn't delivered resounding alpha in its search for delivering value to the industry as yet, it has driven an enormous pool of talent into our universe that we've signed to understand and engage with. And I think that's a very credible upside to the sort of five-year journey of InsurTech that we've seen. So would you say it is incumbent on us to just to engage with technology and understand exactly what it can do? And then we bring the insurance part and then find the places where we know this technology can assist us. Look, I think it's on both parties, right? Insurers have a long way to go to engage and be more nimble in their minds in terms of what is possible and who can do what. Equally, I think it's also incumbent on the technology companies Going back to what James said about sort of customer engagement, learn the language of their clients. Yes, it might be specific and rightly or wrongly so, but that's the reality we live in. So I think it's for both parties. And I think there's also an increasing group of people who can navigate both worlds. And I think those minds will be extremely valuable going forward because they can truly bridge both worlds. And I think an underwriter of the future in my world is definitely somebody who has a bit of data science under their skin, not necessarily doing all, all the coding, but certainly somebody who can live with that logic and not be scared to death by it. I haven't run out of questions, but I've run out of time. So Sylvie and James, I've really, really enjoyed this discussion. I think we could go on an awful lot longer, but we have run out of time. So thank you so much for being so frank and really getting under the skin of the market and also all the changes and process in this market and the way that underwriting is happening rather than just the state of the market according to underwriters is also the state of underwriting as a profession, I think has been a really valuable discussion to have. So thank you so much. And I hope we'll check in and get you on the voice of insurance sometime soon. Thank you, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Thank you.